All right, as we begin uh, today's lesson, let's, let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your good providence and your care for your church and for your gospel and preserving it from age to age. We pray that you would uh, instruct us through this time uh, that we might study your deeds and your word. We pray that you would inspire us and strengthen us in your ways, that we might bear a good witness before the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to first make um, a side note or clarification from last week. Uh, Last week we talked about kind of getting us from the Westminster Assembly to the first Presbytery in America uh, in 1706 in Philadelphia, from Westminster to Philadelphia. And last term, last week, I used the term state church to re- refer to the Presbyterian church being established in Scotland. Uh, it's probably more accurate to call it an established church, uh, since state church is sometimes used to refer to a church run by the state or subject uh, to the state or part of the state. Uh, but Presbyterians would have protested against all those things. Um, the Kirk of Scotland, unlike the Church of England, did not recognize the king as its supreme governor. Uh, the king was simply a member. Uh, it was established by law as the Church of Scotland, uh, but it retained independence and governed itself. Um, although there would be later controversies in Scottish church history that don't really pertain to this course, because this is primarily a course on American uh, church history. Uh, Presbyterian church history. Uh, We saw that uh, Presbyterians of different nationalities came to the colonies, uh, English, Scottish, Scotch-Irish, as well as a few uh, Dutch Reformed and Huguenots uh, from France, and Francis McKemmy was the first moderator. Uh, Today, though, I want to look at how they adopted the Westminster Standards. Uh, We'll look kind of at three different things uh, that are related. The Great Migration of Scots-Irish in the 1700s, the Adopting Act, the Adopting Act of 1729, and then uh, that kind of being put to the test by a, a heresy case or a, a trial uh, concerning a minister, uh, Reverend Hemphill, in 1735. Uh, but first, let me uh, read Second Timothy 1, 13 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul. Speaking to Timothy, he says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, as a minister of the gospel, had been entrusted with this uh, pattern of sound words, the, the, the doctrine of of Jesus Christ uh, that was apostolic, that was proclaimed by the apostles, and then with Timothy and the church going onward was supposed to guard that deposit, to keep the faith, uh, to be able to to defend it against error, uh, to of course also inspire faith in it, that the church would profess it and and rest upon it. Uh, That's that's been a, a mission of the church ever since to follow that pattern of sound words. Uh, certainly the text of, of Scripture, but then also, like, what does that text mean? Uh, how, how should we explain what we believe the Bible to teach? Uh, how, how should we preach it? 
um, and uh, that has, has been a, a work that the church has done. Not that the church has created this faith, but, to, but has a mission to preserve the faith. Um, the, the message that was once delivered, the faith once delivered unto the saints. Uh, and so we'll see that as that took place in American Presbyterian history. But the first point is, is somewhat of as a, a background. Um, it will be significant for why they became more formal in adopting the Westminster Assembly, uh, sorry, Westminster Standards. But um, in 1717 began the great migration of Scots-Irish. There had already been some of these Scots who had first settled in Ireland and then came to America. Um, but a bunch of them were about to come. The Presbytery had grown in 1706 from one Presbytery to 1716 to a synod, or synod, I was debating with myself how to pronounce it in the week since last week, synod, synod, anyway, that level above the Presbytery, and they had four Presbyteries, so it had grown, but it was about to get much bigger. Between 1717 and 1776, about 250,000 Scots-Irish came to America. Um, That was the last great wave of immigration before the American Revolution. A lot of the English settlers had had already arrived by that time, but the Scots-Irish came uh, from from Ireland. Uh, After the Glorious Revolution, which we had discussed last week, Northern Ireland had flourished. Uh, Even more Scots had moved into that region. There was land available, um, and it had done well. The Huguenots from France had arrived due to religious persecution in France, and they had brought better techniques and how to use linen and make linen out of flax. And so it did well economically in wool and linen, so much so that the English felt threatened by the competition and passed laws to restrict trade from Ulster so that it wouldn't compete with the merchants in England. Um, Also, there were just a few bad years uh, of uh, crops. And then under Queen Anne at the same time, religious discrimination against Presbyterians had risen, had grown. They had previously been more free, uh, but things have been tightening up in uh, privileging the the Church of Ireland, basically the Church of England in Ireland, uh, over against the Presbyterians. And their leases were coming up. One advantage of Northern Ireland is they had long land leases where they could lease land for 30 years and be locked in at the same price. But then, around 1717, these were getting due, and land was less available and become more expensive. And so not all of them were able to afford the new leases. And so many Scots-Irish came to the conclusion that it was time to go to a new land. They'd already settled a new land in Northern Ireland. Now they were going to be settling a new land in the American colonies. And many of them settled in the middle colonies, really especially Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of them arrived in Philadelphia and then went beyond the already established settlements in central or western Pennsylvania. And then from there, following the valleys into uh, western Virginia, and then central and western North and South Carolina. And so they they continued to come and then go beyond the next settlers and kind of leapfrog continual down the valleys into the back country in the mid-1700s. The southern colonies gave them religious toleration because they appreciated having 
these pioneers on the western border to serve as a buffer in case uh, violence would occur, as would happen in the French and Indian War. They appreciated having these already trained pioneers who had been used to violence uh, and, and settlement in Northern Ireland to now do much of the same in an American context. Unfortunately, ministers would have a hard time catching up to them. They kept on moving. And uh, also Presbyterians, we'll talk about this later uh, in another lesson, but they appreciated an educated ministry. And so it wasn't as simple as saying, oh, you, you be the pastor. You know, they, they were supposed to be trained and ordained and sent out and uh, weren't always as prepared as the settlers were to keep moving on west. And one thing uh, about the Scots-Irish, before they became Presbyterian, back in the Middle Ages, they were a very rough crew. Um, and if they were without a church ministry for a while, they tended to revert to some of those lawless, violent uh, ways, uh, especially out on the frontier. But nevertheless, most of the Scots-Irish were Presbyterian, many of them staunchly so. Even if they weren't with the minister, they'd bring their confession of faith with them and carry on at home at least, or maybe gather together um, with uh, others and seek ministers and uh, embracing the robust preaching and strict discipline of the Kirk if it could be had. And so the Presbyterians in Ulster sought to send over ministers, and that would be a, a continual challenge throughout the 17 and 1800s for the Presbyterians. And that's actually one impetus behind the Great Awakening, is that they get itinerant ministers to go out to these uh, unchurched uh, people who are out on the frontier uh, who needed to be reminded of the gospel and to be stirred up uh, in that way. But also, this is important for the Adopting Act, because you have now thousands of Scots-Irish Presbyterians coming to America every year. And so there was greater need to formalize the organization. You know, if you have seven ministers and you all know each other, you can take certain things for granted. Of course everyone agrees on the Westminster Standards. We don't really have to make that official. You know, I know him. Uh, he knows me. But then all of a sudden you get dozens more and, and you know, even thousands of more members and, and elders, and how do you know everyone is going to be preaching the truth? Um, and so in 1727, an overture was brought to the Senate by John Thompson, a Scots-Irish minister in Delaware, that they formally adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism and require ministers to adopt them as the confession of their faith and to not, te not teach contrary to them. He was concerned for the vindic vindication and defense of the truths we profess and preventing the ingress and spreading of error. Um, he, his presbytery brought this overture the next year, and then it was the following year the Senate was ready to uh, deliberate on the matter and, and to decide, because it did come with some controversy. Not everyone thought this was necessary. Some, like Jonathan Dickinson, a minister from New England, pastoring in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, uh, did not want human creeds and confessions to be imposed upon the church. Uh, he, believed that, he believed the doctrines of the Westminster Standards, uh, but he argued that adopting them could introduce unnecessary controversy 
um, and was not necessary to examine ministers and exercise discipline on the basis of Scripture. You know, we have Scripture. We can, we can still discipline and examine people on that basis. Uh, whereas if we adopt the Westminster Standards, we might have controversy about this thing or that thing and, and uh, needlessly divide over it. Um, others, of course, like Reverend Thompson, believed it was quite important to enforce the Westminster Standards to, to guard the church against error. Um, others looked to how this had already been a controversy in Ireland and how they had settled it in uh, 1720. Just briefly, some background on the Westminster Standards in England and Scotland um, and other places. The Kirk of Scotland had adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, although not the catechisms, just, but just the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they did so rather strictly. They, they required ministers to subscribe to it as the confession of their faith, to not teach anything contrary to it. As one historian put it, the Scottish Kirk consistently favored strict subscription to the confession of faith with only minor reservations related to government and church-state relations. Now in New England, where some of the other ministers were from, um, a modified version of the Westminster Confession was incorporated into their Congregationalist church platforms, uh, but they didn't have the same mechanisms to really enforce it in a congregational form of, of government. Um, so it was used, but uh, wasn't enforced the same way that Presbyterians were able to do so. In Ireland, they had required preachers to subscribe to the Confession of Faith in all its articles as the confession of their faith, and uh, Arianism began to surface as an issue, uh, what would later be called Unitarianism. And so they doubled down on confession, uh, subscribing to the confession as a way of guarding against it. Uh, but then some reacted against that and it became a controversy back and forth. So in 1720, the Pacific Act was passed to resolve the dispute, reaffirming confessional subscription, but allowing men to make any scruples known, which the Presbytery should record and allow if they judge the man to be sound in the faith and his explanations to be consistent with the substance of the doctrine. And so that would be an important um, example that would be used by the American Presbyterians in figuring out how best to adopt the standards. It still didn't prevent a group from breaking off who refused to subscribe, and so American Presbyterians realized that it still could result in, in some division, even among people who didn't deny the doctrines, who didn't want to subscribe to the confessions. So in 1729, they formed a committee of eight to come up with a proposal, including kind of both ends of the discussion, Jonathan Dickinson as well as John Thompson. And uh, then on September 19th, they agreed on a way to adopt the Westminster Standards and require ministers to subscribe to them. And this was known as the Adopting Act. <clears throat> and in short... Church membership was open to all members of the visible church, um, you know, and, and uh, basically as wide as the kingdom of heaven, uh, that you didn't even necessarily have to be Presbyterian in conviction to be a member, you had to be a Christian uh, to be a member of the church. Um, while they, and they also disavowed imposing their faith on other men's consciences, 
Uh, yet to preserve the faith once delivered to the saints, all ministers were required to, d- to declare, quote, their agreement in an approbation of the confession of faith with the larger and shorter catechisms of the Assembly of Divines at Westminster as being in all the essential and necessary articles, good forms of sound words and systems of Christian doctrine. The Synod also agreed to adopt the confession and catechisms as the confession of their faith. Um, and so it was, it was being adopted as what they believed Scripture to say, uh, not simply imposing what they believed on, on others, but them agreeing together as the Synod that this is what we believe uh, this is what we believe. This is what we believe Scripture to say. They agreed that the way this would work would be that each minister or candidate would be asked to declare any scruple he might have with any article of these standards to his presbytery or synod. The presbytery or synod would admit him if it judges, quote, his scruple or mistake to be only about articles not essential and necessary in doctrine, worship, or government. But if the synod or presbytery shall judge such ministers or candidates erroneous in essential and necessary articles of faith, the synod or presbytery shall declare them incapable of communion with them. Uh, and so there was to be this process where they could say, I, I don't agree with this statement, or at least I would put it in this way, and I don't take it in this sense. And he, he was supposed to be clear about that, uh, have some transparency. Um, is there any area where you might scruple at, at this confession of faith and catechisms that you are adopting as the confession of your faith and let the presbytery or the synod uh, be the judge of whether that uh, violated uh, or was not in accord with any essential and necessary articles of faith or worship or government? So that's what they decided in the morning. This is what we're going to do. And then in the afternoon, they did it. They did it themselves. Uh, They applied it to themselves. They each declared any scruples they had. And then they unanimously agreed in judging these scruples to be about articles not necessary and essential. And, quote, in declaring the same said confession and catechisms to be the confession of their faith. They also expressed together a unanimous exception. They all had a particular scruple with some clauses in the 20th and 23rd chapters concerning which clauses the Senate do unanimously declare that they do not receive those articles in any such sense as to suppose the civil magistrate hath a controlling power over synods with respect to the exercise of their ministerial authority or power to persecute any for their religion or in any sense contrary to the Protestant succession of the throne of Great Britain. Um, It's not a surprise then that some of those areas were later revised by uh, American Presbyterians near the end of the century. Uh, But they they said, we don't believe these in this sense. You know, we have have this clarification that we'd want to make on these. And we actually all agree on this particular scruple, and they might have had others as well. And then the Senate also unanimously acknowledged and declared, quote, that they judged the directory for worship, discipline, and government of the church, commonly annexed to the Westminster Confession, to be agreeable in substance to the word of God and founded thereupon, and therefore do earnestly recommend the same to all their members, to be by them observed as near as circumstances will allow and Christian prudence direct. 
So maybe a little more leeway there, but they also uh, received the, uh, the directory uh, that would guide their worship discipline and government. So they, they, this was the Adopting Act. They, they adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter and larger catechisms. And this was important because creeds and confessions have been used throughout uh, church history and uh, using them for several purposes. Uh, this was to profess their faith, the faith of the church. This is what the faith professes. This is what we believe scripture to, uh, to meet. Now, we want to be able to articulate this to the world and to our members, certainly, to profess Christ before men. Uh, secondly, to use it to explain the faith to unbelievers, uh, to witness to the world. And uh, thirdly, to distinguish the faith from heresy. Uh, that this is what we believe Scripture to, to say, and, and uh, we don't want to, to deviate from the truth. Uh, this type of profession of the faith identifies and unifies the church. Uh, and a government has been established by Christ uh, to settle doctrinal disputes and to guard against heresy, as we could see in Exodus, sorry, in Acts 15, where there's a dispute about a doctrine, and they go up to the assembly in, in Jerusalem and decide that doctrinal controversy. And so uh, this is how it uh, begins. Now, throughout Presbyterian history, maybe we'll come across it, there's a bit of debate on the exact nuances of some of these things, but that's the, the basic overview of the Adopting Act. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. That's a good question, and I haven't found a clear answer on that yet. Um, there's, that's mentioned in the initial overture to the, the Presbytery about not teaching contrary to the Confession, although it sounds like, and I'd have to look at it more detail, it sounds like don't teach unless you basically get permission from the Presbytery um, that, that they would judge it, that you could teach it. But that's in the overture. That's not necessarily in what they adopted. So it's a little unclear. If you had a scruple and it was resolved you know, as, as not necessary and essential, would you be free to teach it? Uh, I, I haven't seen, I don't know yet how that was practiced. Yeah. Yes. No, it's not a coincidence, because is, that is the, the route that the Scots-Irish took, um, but it's also the route of other people who moved to Pennsylvania. Um, if you're in Pennsylvania, instead of moving directly west, it made a lot more sense to follow the, the valleys where there was land available. And so a lot of Scots-Irish, but also uh, some uh, Germans who came to Pennsylvania would also go in a similar route, um, not quite as aggressively, but you'll see... Uh, Germans do that too. And then also some uh, Quakers or former Quakers like the Boones, uh, who are Welsh or English, uh, would follow a similar route. And speaking of Daniel Boone, he was born the year before our next event, uh, and not very far from it either. Uh, so in Philadelphia, there was the discipline case of Reverend Hemphill in 1735. Daniel Boone was born in 1734. 
um, maybe 40, 50 miles out of town, something like that. And uh, Samuel Hemphill uh, would be ordained, he was ordained in Ireland right before he came over, which to begin with is a little bit of an issue that he's, he's being examined by people over the ocean, uh, but not really with a call. Uh, he's being sent over as such, and they receive him then as an ordained minister. He subscribed to the Confession of Faith in Ireland and then to the, the full Westminster Standards in America upon his arrival without any exceptions, without any scruples. And then by November of 1734, so pretty much right away, he's same year as he was ordained, he was serving as an assistant to Pastor Andrews in Philadelphia. But then, not long after that, April of 1735, his minister that he's helping brings a complaint against him to the Commission of Senate. The Commission of Senate is basically part of the Senate that would deal with their affairs in between their meetings. So there's a group of eight or so that Andrews brings a complaint against his assistant minister. Uh, The commission and a bunch of corresponding members, so there would actually be about half of the ministers of the Senate ended up being there, held a trial for about a week and unanimously determined to suspend him from the ministry until the meeting of the full Senate. Now, this trial gained a lot of attention because there was a 29-year-old printer in in Philadelphia who you know, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin had become an avid follower of Samuel Hemphill. He really liked the preaching of this new assistant minister. In fact, a lot of kind of free-thinking uh, people in Philadelphia had rallied behind this new minister and his preaching. And so Benjamin Franklin championed him in the newspaper and would complain that these bigoted Presbyterians were reestablishing an inquisition and unfairly treating this Samuel Hemphill. And they wrote pamphlets back and forth, and the commission would also write publications defending its stance. But it was a It was a a controversy of the day. The Commission of Senate had specified six heirs that Hemphill was found to maintain. Um, Let me briefly go through these so you can understand what was at stake. Uh, First, Hemphill uh, taught that Christianity was simply a republishing of the law of nature. Um, Things that you could have understood from nature uh, to begin with, uh, but it was being clarified in scripture, and simply with the addition of the two sacraments and prayer through Jesus' name. Uh, But besides that, it was simply uh, republishing the law of nature. Secondly, that the children of Christian parents in a Christian country do not require regeneration or cannot be called new creatures, uh, because they're not being, you know, brought out of paganism uh, like, like some of the converts in the New Testament were. Uh, Third, that God did not demand a full satisfaction for the offenses of sinners from Christ, and that, quote, God hath no regard to anything but man's inward merits and deserts. Uh, Fourth, that Hemphill gave a definition of faith that did not mention our receiving of Christ on the terms of the gospel. That's kind of a significant thing to mention if you're talking about faith. Fifth, that he denied the necessity of special revelation for salvation, which would kind of make sense if special revelation was the same thing as natural revelation, and uh, maybe you wouldn't need it. 
Uh, He asserted the sufficiency of the light of nature to bring us to salvation. And then sixth, he perverted the doctrine of justification by faith, claiming that only adults converted from a life of sin could be said to be saved by faith. Those raised in the faith must build their hopes of happiness on purity of heart and a virtuous life. Does any of that sound off? (laughs) Uh, Those are some pretty significant errors. Um, And they also kind of together have a, a similar tendency to exalt reason and the law of nature as well as to be rather moralistic. They're like, Christianity is about being good, uh, and, and that's kind of it. And uh, these were the flow of the culture at the time. We're now in the Enlightenment, or even after part of the Enlightenment, and there is a much greater emphasis on let's get beyond the denominational squib- squabblings over Scripture. Let's just go to what the light of nature tells us. We could all agree on that, and let's be good. And that's what Benjamin Franklin liked, too. Uh, He was all about morality, uh, but not necessarily the gospel of Jesus Christ in an orthodox sense. So by the meeting of Senate, additionally, they found not only was Hemphill preaching falsehood, but it wasn't even stuff he came up with. He had plagiarized the sermons. He hadn't preached any of his own sermons. He had such a good memory, he could read someone else's sermon and then give it. And so he had actually been preaching the sermons written by Aryan ministers of England that he thought, oh, no one will notice it because I'm over in America now. And so they were heretical pastors. No wonder there were heirs in them. And uh, that uh, only further uh, uh, condemned him. And so the, the Senate confirmed the action of the commission, judging him unqualified for any future exercise of his ministry. And they did that despite pressure from the press, despite people saying, oh, look, they're, they're being big meanies ganging up on this poor little pastor in Philadelphia. But they saw that this was an important stand to take, that the church needs to exercise discipline to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to them. And it would actually be very important. Uh, Unitarianism, which would take up a lot of these trends and tendencies, would arise not only in the British Isles, but in America, and it would seep into some of the Congregationalist churches that didn't have the same means of exercising discipline over their ministers and their churches. And uh, churches in Boston, for example, would become Unitarian. Well, not only Congregationalist, actually some Episcopal churches too. But you didn't find Unitarian churches within the Presbyterian church. Uh, there would be struggle with air, but you wouldn't have... Uh, a Unitarian church within the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. Uh, They would would take a stand on this and enforce the confession of faith that they had adopted. In fact, one of the leading ministers in defending the actions of the Senate was Jonathan Dickinson, the one who had been rather hesitant about adopting human creeds and confessions. And he argued that they were still being consistent uh, with what they had done. And he wrote for the committee... Quote, at the time of his adopting the confession and catechisms, he, that is Hemphill, was called upon to propose his objections if he had any. But he replied he had none to make, and that he had before subscribed the same in Ireland. Um, later, he would be claiming that, oh, I would just took a 
either he or Benjamin Franklin for him was claiming that, oh, I was just subscribing to the basic doctrines as I believed it of the Westminster Standards. And so I'm still affirming the basic ideas like the light of nature, for example. Uh, But the Presbyterians would say it's not up to the individual to decide what's necessary and essential. Uh, It's for the Presbytery or Senate. That's why you're supposed to explain any area where you disagree. And they added, nor is it any excuse that the Senate has not defined how many fundamental articles there are in the Confession, since they have reserved to themselves the liberty to judge upon each occasion what are and what are not fundamental. So you don't get to just decide that yourself, saying, I agree with everything, but only mean I agree with a few things that I think are important, and then go on and teach whatever you want. Uh, It was supposed to be transparent, supposed to uh, bring things to light. And so after this, the Senate made clear their position on subscribing to the confessions, um, required thorough examinations to confirm the firm attachment of men to the standards before allowing them to preach, and that ministers preach six months before they are called, which is where we get our idea of licensure before ordination, that students become well known to the presbytery before being ordained. All right, we're getting all these men from Ulster now. Some of them might not all be reliable. Let's check them out, get to know them a little bit before we uh, ordain them. The next year, it affirmed that the Senate still adhered to the Confession, Catechisms, and Directory without the least variation or alteration. By allowing for ministers to take exceptions to things judged not necessary and essential did not mean that they had amended the standards. They had adopted them wholesale, as the standards of the church. And so men coming to be ordained were supposed to express anywhere where they had objections because there was still the whole confession and catechisms that had been adopted by uh, the church. And so this is the, the adopting act being put into, into action with the case of Reverend Hemphill. Uh, any questions before we close? Like I said, this is a perennial debate. It's a still alive debate today within Presbyterianism as uh, about the process, but also simply putting it into practice um, in uh, many of the same issues because the mission of keeping the faith, guarding the good deposit, um, is, is a perennial work of the church for us to uh, keep the faith, to support it, to be a pillar and ground of the truth, not just ministers, not just ruling elders even, but, but the church as a whole uh, to be supporting the gospel of Jesus Christ um, as, as the church of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel and for your work in providence and by your spirit to maintain these truths. We pray that you would strengthen us Uh, that our faith would be well-grounded in your word, and that we would stand by it, uh, remaining steadfast in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.